you're seated, we come then to the preaching of God's Word found in Hebrews chapter 6, and there verses 17 and 18. Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, wherein we read, Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. It's truly noted that faith is as simple as looking to God in trust. This is why, of course, we have great hope that children would look unto God and trust in Him, and that aged men and women should do the same, because faith is that trust-filled look unto Him who is faithful to keep His Word. And yet, there is often, because of this, a misunderstanding to think that faith then is an easy thing. It's simple. It is clear what faith is, and it's very basic that the youngest child with understanding can be brought to trust in God who is faithful. And yet, because there is much weakness in man, because there is much confusion in man, because even in the best believer there is still something of unbelief, there is great need that man should be provided much help better to understand God's promise. And the willingness of God to keep His Word. Such we find in the text before us. What assurance may we, what assurance can we have that God will keep His Word? Well, of course, each of us, I surely hope, would be able to say, we have all the assurance we need in that God who is faithful has promised. And that's true. All of us, from that very truth, should look at every promise of God and should have no doubt, not even the slightest part of it, because the one who is promised is faithful. And yet we see in the text before us such tender love of God toward His children that He draws near and He provides not only a promise, but as is here recorded, He likewise confirms His promise by an oath. That is, he swears by his own name, as is earlier stated in verse 13, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. Now, we know much in our own world of unlawful oaths. We know much in our own world of profane oaths. Men who are godless taking God's name upon their lips, swearing by heaven, swearing by their own word, which is manifestly worthless. But we do know that there are lawful oaths. And when men take those, they don't swear by themselves, they swear by Him who is greater than they are. But God has none who is greater than He is. And so He swears by His own great Name. There's much in this as we hope to see for the great encouragement of every believer. Notice the text itself. It provides us an encouragement 
to persevere in diligence. And so all of it's related to what's noted in verse 11. We desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. That you wouldn't just rest upon what's taken place thus far in your pilgrimage. That you wouldn't just look back and say, yeah, 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 ten years ago, I had this experience, I trusted, and everything's fine now. And we sit back and relax, as it were, to go on a spiritual vacation. But rather, the Word of God is coming to encourage us and to spur us on that we would be diligent pursuing that full assurance of hope unto the end. And among other things, the encouragement provided us is God's promise, as we see, and His oath to that promise. Notice verse 17, which indicates what God has provided for our help. It's that He was willing more abundantly to show. That is, He was purposing to show exceedingly clearly. He wasn't wanting it to be a whisper. Have you ever been in that experience, children? where someone's drawing near and they're whispering and you can't really hear, there's background noise going on. You say, speak up, but it's so secretive that there's fear of speaking up. They want to keep it hidden. That's not what God's doing with this. He's showing it most clearly. He's turning up the volume. He's making it magnified. And what is it He's showing? Notice, the immutability of His counsel. This word immutability means the unchangeableness, that which doesn't change. Do you know what's true of everyone in this room? You and I are not immutable. We change. We change regularly throughout every day of our life. We know the experience of being excited to be followed by a season of being depressed. We know what it is to be hungry, then to be filled. We know what it is to be zealous, then to be cowardly. We know what it is to be full of joy and then to be chased away by the rustling of a leaf. But God is unchangeable. And what's true of God is true also of His purpose. And so He's desiring to show that His purpose will not change. And to whom is He desiring to show this? To the heirs of promise to those who inherit the promise. And this is bringing us back to Abraham, who was the father of faith, and to whom was given the promise that there would be a multiplying of seed, which of course, as we know, speaks of not only the literal descendants according to the flesh, but those who have embraced the faith of Abraham as well. And so how did he do this? Well, he spoke clearly, He didn't equivocate, but he also did something more than that. He, as the text says, confirmed it by an oath. And the word confirmed is actually in the Greek, he interposed, he went between. And so here's the promise, here's the fulfillment of the promise, and he stands between. And he says, if the fulfillment fails, let the weight of it all come crashing down upon me. He takes it upon Himself as the mediator. And verse 18 gives the purpose for all of this, that by two immutable things referring both to His promise and to the added oath in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, a strong assurance. 
who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Now, brethren, what we see here in the text, among many other things, is that the Lord has provided for His believing people great comfort by His sworn promise that is given us in Christ Jesus. Now, for those who are simplistic in their thoughts, not simple, but simplistic, they may think, what's the need for this? Why is it that anyone would ever struggle with this? Well, perhaps it is that such a person has been given such a measure of grace that they've never doubted, never struggled with unbelief, never wrestled with those doubts and difficulties. Perhaps not the difficulty of trusting that God is faithful, but plagued at times with the seasons of lack of assurance, have I trusted? Would God be merciful to me? And so on. But for many, they are acquainted with that struggle. And God knows that. And just as a loving parent cares for his children, so God cares for his children and says, look again at how sure and steadfast and certain my purpose to save is. Look how clearly I am in articulating to you that I will save to the uttermost Him which draws near to me by Christ Jesus. That He not only promises, but He takes this oath. Well, for our own help, consider then three things. Firstly, the promise which is for our comfort. Secondly, the certainty of comfort. And thirdly, the enjoyment of comfort. All of this from the text before us wherein we see that all of what is here stated is to the end that we might have a strong consolation, a firm assurance, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Now, firstly, then the promise for our comfort. If ever our souls should find comfort, it must be that our souls find comfort in God's promise. All of us know what it is to have been disappointed even in those who are dearest to us. A spouse, perhaps. A parent, perhaps. A child, perhaps. Moreover, we know what it is to be the cause of disappointment in another when we have failed to keep our word. We know what it is to have promised something, and whatever our intentions were, whatever our resources were, to come to the moment to fulfill it and be without the fulfilling of our word. What a burden that is. And surely such is a stinging conviction to our souls when it has come to pass. So how is it then that our souls have comfort in God? Well, notice first, regarding the promise of our comfort, who it is that is promised. And it says in our text that it's God, verse 17, God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, and so on. And verse 18, it was impossible for God to lie. And so we see in verse 13, which is the background of it all, that God made promise to Abraham. So it's God who has made promise. This is important and instructive to you and to me, because it means the attributes of God back His promise. 
This is the importance of what is stated when it says God, or rather in verse 18, that it was impossible for God to lie. Do you know that that can't be said of anyone else? It's possible for a pastor to lie. It's possible for a husband to lie. It's possible for a wife to lie, for a parent to lie. It's possible for a general assembly to lie. It's possible for a government to lie. It's even possible for an angel to lie. So we see it in Satan. But brethren, though it's possible of every other rational creature, it is impossible for the Creator It's impossible that God should ever lie. And yet, think of this for a moment. That is the very thing that is the foundation of every assault of Satan's temptation. Hath God said? And following with that, the questioning of the integrity of the one who has said. There's always something embedded in Satan's assaults Casting aspersions upon the character of God. And so when it is a Christian, a believer, struggles with assurance, in back of it is often this struggling to believe God's Word. And it's rather cleverly done by our adversary. Because what he loves to do is he loves to point out all of the wickedness of our own hearts. He loves to say, look, How could God truly be pleased to have you unto Himself? How could God welcome you to His table? How could God ever expect to bless you? Look how filthy you are. Look how weak you are. Oh, I heard all of the promises you made that morning. And then I saw an hour later all of the compromises you began. And He pours all of these things on. But you know what He can't do? at least he can't do with any credit, is he can't point to God and say, God lies. God doesn't keep His Word. Oh, he can use those words. But when he comes to you and to me, there's a barb in it because it's close to our hearts. There's some seed of truth in it when he comes as the accuser of the brethren because there's much in us to accuse. But if he points to God and says, God lies, oh, even the most lowly saint would rise up and say, you are the liar. And so it's important for us to see who it is that's promised because it then helps us to see the nature of the promise itself. But there's actually more in who it is that's promised. We saw this, and we can briefly refer to it, in Genesis chapter 22. You'll notice this is in the context of the trial that Abraham has been brought through. And you see it in verse 15. It says, The angel of the Lord called unto Abraham. And you see it again uh, in previous mention when it is verse 11. The angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven. Now, what's important about this is that we understand the term angel. When you and I hear the word angel out of context, we're likely to think of those created beings who are full of power, full of might, and servants to God. But this is not the use of that word. The word angel, 
both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, has to do with one that's a messenger. And, of course, you and I well know that the ultimate messenger of God is none less than the eternal Word of God. It is He who most fully discloses, He who most fully testifies of and teaches of and relates the Word of God. And you see it in the text. Because in verse 15, the angel of Jehovah is calling, and what does the angel say? He says, by myself have I sworn. So the messenger is the one swearing who is himself Jehovah. It's the second person of the Trinity who's here swearing. Now brethren, what this means is that the one who's swearing is not just God abstracted and general, though it's true that when one person swears, the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are there, as it were, promising the same thing. But here it's in particularly noted, particularly noted that the Son of God, the Word of God, here pre-incarnate, later to be incarnate, is the one who's speaking. It's none less than your Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God who's making such a promise. It reminds us that our Savior is Himself fully divine. And it also buoys our souls all the more to realize the One who is promised is the One who is promised and who has fulfilled that promise. Well, before moving further, notice what is promised. It's there as well. When we read earlier, That he says, surely, verse 14, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. This is, to be efficient in our time, a summary of the whole covenant. It's a summary of the whole gospel. It's the holding forth of God's promise to Abraham and through Abraham to all who would embrace the truth. You can see this in a number of places that this is the provision of Christ for salvation. Notice how in Luke chapter 1, this is referred to by Zacharias. And so it is in Luke chapter 1 and verse 68. The father Zacharias, that is of John the Baptist, is filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied saying, what? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, For he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham." He would grant us unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear. And it goes further as John the Baptist should go before, verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation unto His people by the remission of their sins. It's all bound up in this. That which God is pronouncing unto Abraham in Genesis 22 is not merely this increase of earthly descendants, though that's included. It goes well beyond that. 
And it promised this, this gathering in of all nations by faith in the promised Savior, Jesus Christ. You see this as well in the book of Galatians. Notice Galatians in chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 in there at verse 13. We read, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, we could multiply instances of seeing this, but the idea is that the blessing which God holds forth to Abraham encompasses all the covenant of grace, all of the blessings therein provided, all of the blessings held forth. He's saying, this is what I'm giving unto you. This is what I'm promising. And we could summarize it further in saying He's promising to be our God and to have us as His people. Well, if that's the case, we must be a people who are pardoned, a people who are received and reconciled. We must be a people who are brought near to Him and brought into fellowship with Him, all of which is provided in and through Jesus Christ. So what is promised is the grand truth that God would save us through Jesus Christ. This is why in context, notice how the chapter goes on beyond our text, that there's this consolation to us, verse 18, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, speaking of entering into the holy of holies, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever to the order of Melchizedek. Brethren, it would be easier to answer in some ways what isn't promised because what is promised are all of the blessings bound up in His covenant through Jesus Christ. Well, secondly then, we come to consider not only the promise itself, but the certainty of comfort by the promise. Shall this promise give us comfort? Well, consider the nature of him who promised. We mentioned this already, verse 18. It says that it was impossible for God to lie. It's God promising, as we saw. And that means that his word, as it were, is backed by his attributes, particularly that he is faithful. We love to consider, and rightly so, the things that God can do. And it would be right of us to remind ourselves that we can never fully imagine what God can do. But brethren, there's equal benefit in remembering and meditating on what God cannot do. Now, there are seasons in the church where this gets lost, and out of a desire to acknowledge God's omnipotence, that He can do all His holy will, there is this idea that He can do anything. And in simple terms, of course, it's okay to affirm God can do anything, but when further tested, we have to clarify what we mean by that because the Scriptures tell us that there are things that God can't do. But we ought not to be alarmed by it because the things He can't do are things that are sinful. He's so 
holy that he cannot look upon sin. Notice the text, it's impossible for him to lie, which is repeated by Paul in Titus 1 and verse 2, when he writes, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. I imagine that in the best relationship, there's some degree in this world of a doubt that may find some room in our minds. Is this person lying? But brethren, there's no room for the slightest thought, whisper, entertainment of that with reference to God. It's impossible for him to do it. There's more possibility, children, of seeing an elephant fly through the air than ever to consider God lying. It's utterly impossible because he is the true God. He only speaks what is true. Brethren, may you understand something to make a connection quickly? Think of how wicked a thought it is when we entertain thoughts that God may not be telling the truth. That's not humility. It's rebellion. God is true. His promises of forgiveness are true. His promise of love is true. Of fellowship is true. And it is without any admission of doubt. But brethren, there's more regarding the certainty of comfort. Not only the nature of Him who is promised, but the oath of Him who is promised. It's an interesting thought to ask, how interested is God in His children's assurance? Some Christians seemingly think that God is so much careless and says, well, you know, if you want it, you can have it, but if you don't, no big deal. So on, we admit and we acknowledge as the Scriptures teach that God does not give everyone the experience of assurance, that for hidden and secret purposes to some He gives full assurance, to others He causes and allows them to struggle with that assurance and so on. But let's live as we are to live in what is revealed. And what is revealed? That God has laid such a clear foundation that all of His children, by the revelation of His Word, should have nothing but cause for assurance. Why? Because He confirmed His promise by an oath. Literally, He stood between as mediator by this oath. You see a picture of this in Genesis chapter 43. You remember, of course, children, Joseph had been sold by his brethren. He had gone into Egypt and God had raised him up to great influence and power. And the famine was great in the land, not only in Egypt, but throughout uh, ancient, the ancient Near East, such that his family now stood in need of food. And so uh, Jacob sends his children down that remain and they don't recognize Joseph. They're sent back and so on. And notice what's said when the famine worsens and Judah is pleading with his father, we have to go back. And in order to go back, I must bring your youngest son with me. And notice what Judah says in uh, Genesis chapter 43 and there at verse 8. 
He says, it says, Judah said unto Israel, that is Jacob his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. Do you know what Judah's doing? He's interposing himself. He's saying, I will bear the consequences if I fail to bring back your son to you. And so he takes it upon himself. Now, brethren, take a moment to think of this. The Son of God gives promise, which ought to be met with nothing but absolute trust. But seeing our weakness, seeing the complications of our own experience and so on, he so opens his grand love to us in saying, let me tell you how certain this promise is. If the word should fail, we say this with reverence, may the consequences fall upon me that I should stand condemned forever. Now this isn't that condemnation he experiences on the cross. Rather, it would be an annihilation of the Son of God. And you should instantly say, that's impossible. That's the point. He couldn't be annihilated. He couldn't fail. He's telling us with the greatest certainty, do you want to know how certain my word is? If my word fails, I will fail to be the Son of God. Brethren, there's no bigger assurance that you and I could ever have. There are wondrous statements in the Scriptures regarding God's faithfulness. We read some earlier this week on the Lord's Day when it was that God says, if you can break the covenant that I've made with day and night, then I I may fail to keep my word. But here is something that goes beyond that. If I fail to keep my word, says the Son of God, then may I cease to be the Son of God. And notice he does so himself. He swears by himself. What's the weight of this? He's pledging himself for his word. Brethren, this is the degree of certainty that you and I ought to have. God who is faithful is promised and the Son of God has said, My word will be true. It will be faithful. And if you have any doubt, let me confirm it by swearing by myself. It's interesting when Christ says, listen, when you say yes or no, don't swear by your head. Why? You can't make one hair white. You can't change the color of it. And people do this all the time, right? Even Christians, they'll do these soft oaths, these minced oaths as a former generation would have called them. And so they say things like, Gosh, and they say things like, my word, and these kinds of things. What does that even do? It does nothing. It gives no assurance when such things just readily come off our our lips. When we use it as exclamation, when we say something is funny and we use these kinds of expressions, it so denigrates the solemnity of swearing something. But brethren, understand this. Christ never spoke a word 
without every intention of the full assurance of his word being true. He never carelessly spoke a word. It's a, it's a scary thing for us. It's something that ought to awaken us and sober us when we think that we will be judged even by the words we've spoken thoughtlessly, careless words that have come out. Christ never spoke a word that was careless. And surely when he's taking upon himself this oath, he's speaking so clearly and purposefully that he's saying, here is the certainty. There can be nothing more certain than this word. Well, we move then to consider, thirdly, the enjoyment of this comfort. Because this is not meant to be something of a lesson in God's faithfulness. It is rather meant to be an encouragement for our consolation. Notice that all of this, that by these two immutable things, we might have a strong consolation. Why is Christ doing this? Why is God doing this? He's doing this for our benefit. He's coming near to us by His Word, by His oath, and He's saying, this is for you. This is for your encouragement. This is for your advancement. This is for your assurance. Notice, it's not to all that this enjoyment is given because it's limited. It's limited to those who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. It's made to believers, those who have trusted in His Word. And so you can see it in Abraham, right? Abraham believes God, and it's proven by his offering up of Isaac, and it's then that this oath comes. Surely, blessing, will I bless thee. And this, we see, is not just for Abraham, because it's given for those who are heirs of the promise. Verse 17, for those who have fled for refuge. When was the last time in your life that it could be said that you fled from something? To flee is to run. But to flee for refuge is to run because there's concern of danger. Sometimes we can get lost in this thought of the perfection of faith as if it were that, you hear sometimes people say this, well, it's not faith if we aren't trusting God only for His sake. And we have no interest in our own salvation. Well, there's truth, of course. Faith does trust God for His own sake. But brethren, the Bible treats us as we are. Christ doesn't say, come unto me because you ought to come unto me. What does He say? Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. He's acknowledging the difficulties, the hardships, the convictions. And He's saying, look, that's why I'm here. I've come to relieve you. I've come to save you. So come to me. And brethren, if ever we have felt the conviction of sin if ever we have heard the thundering of God's condemnation of sin, it is the most sane thing to flee for refuge to the only hope which is set before us, Jesus Christ. Oh, young people and children, if you have not yet trusted in Christ, 
See that He is the refuge for all who have need of refuge. And you are to flee to Him. It's the picture, isn't it, of those cities of refuge. There's the manslayer coming after Him. And what does He do? He has His eyes fixed on the city of refuge and He runs there. He doesn't calm down and say, well, it's not that big of a deal. He doesn't camp out. He doesn't say, there's the wall of the city. I'll see about getting in the next day. He bangs on the wall with both of His hands. He cries out, open the gate, let me in. There's a slayer after me. There's one following on my heels. I need refuge within. We're told elsewhere that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. They don't casually say, well, you know, let's be cool about this and let's reflect about this. They run into it. Brethren, this is the comfort provided for them. Because in running into God's promise, in running into Christ Jesus, we now have refuge. We now have peace with God. We now have the forgiveness of our sins. We now have fellowship with God by reconciliation by the blood of Christ Jesus. And so we no longer need the terror of our souls. There's no longer the need for that concern that perhaps will stand condemned. And isn't this wisely placed in this chapter when such a solemn word has been spoken earlier that it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, there's no more concerning thing that you or I could come across. But brethren, if we have fled to Christ for refuge, we're in the place of refuge. How sure should we be that we have peace with God, that we have refuge in Christ? So sure as an oath undertaken by our Savior provides us. So if we have fled to Christ, if we have trusted in Christ, yea, though it be with weak faith, with little faith, if it is in Christ, we have comfort, consolation. Not just that. We have a strong consolation because God is, as it were, showing us the bulwarks and saying, do you see how thick these walls are? Do you see how sure these gates are? Do you see how certain the security of this fortress is? It is impenetrable even from the slayer who follows after you. Even from that wicked adversary who hurls his fiery darts at you. You are safe in the name of Christ Jesus. You have peace with God by Him who is our peace with God. And so what's supposed to happen? It's not that we're to sort of relax, as it were, and sort of put our feet up, but we're rather to now labor in the assurance that underneath are the everlasting arms, that God is our God, that He has loved us with an everlasting love, and that all around is His provision of grace through Christ Jesus. It's true 
that still do we sin. But brethren, as we have fled to Christ Jesus, it's likewise true that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins still. This is the refuge that you and I have in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And the assurance is by the Word of Christ Himself. As we close, learn here the great kindness and care that God has for His children. There are times where there's a needed word of reproof for our lack of belief. O ye of little faith, But brethren, be sure of this, that to his children, though he comes with a word of reproof, the word's not spoken, as we might think, harshly and bitterly against his children, but rather lovingly, a tender word to reprove us, to say, do you not know the strength of the refuge in which you dwell? You are in the refuge that the Son of God has provided. He's come and He stoops down to us and He looks us in the eye as we get filled with trepidation. Our circumstances turn here and our difficulties mount up there and adversaries amass themselves together and we start to tremble. And what does God do? He comes to us. He puts His hands on our shoulders as it were and He says, remember the faithfulness of the One who has promised. Listen again to the oath that has been taken upon Himself. You have no cause for fear. God is our refuge. We sing it. What's joined with it? Therefore, we will not fear. Why? Because God is our refuge. How do we know God is our refuge? I can't see God as our refuge. Well, open your eyes to His Word. And you have His Word swearing that He is as we trust in Him. Here is the firm ground for your assurance, child of God. Though there is the confirming witness of the inner work of the testimony of God's Spirit, though there's the outward evidence of the fruit of faith in our works, the fundamental the most clear and firm foundation for our assurance is God's word of promise. And so if our assurance gets tottering, we have need to have it reestablished firmly upon the word of His promise. We must live by faith in His promise because it's them who through faith and patience, verse 12, inherit the promise. And so we must come again to His promises. We must think of Him who has promised and say, this is that sure foundation. Surely there is a warning to any who can rehearse the promises, who can teach the promises, who can tell others about the promises, and yet who stand outside of the walls of refuge and are like some kind of tour guide saying, well, look there at that bulwark and see the gate, how clearly it opens and people run in through it. And let me walk around on the other side and show you these things about this promise and those things about the promise and how clear it is. And see all these adversaries? Well, they'll never do anything to topple the great uh, castle of God's covenant. And yet to be a tour guide 
outside of the refuge is to be exposed to all the torments of damnation. The only comfort that is here given is given to them who have fled unto Christ for refuge. And so, brethren, those of you who have so fled, here is your encouragement, here is your comfort. The one whom you have fled to, the one whom you have trusted, is faithful to his word, and his oath, as it were, hangs over himself and guarantees that he will keep his promise. Well, as we prepare for coming to the Lord's table in his mercy tomorrow, here is great reason for expectation of blessing. Because what's true here of all of the sum of God's covenant is true of the various particular promises in God's covenant. And so when we come to the table by His blessing, and we hear none less than Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who has sworn with an oath these things, that He says, this is My body which is broken for you. The cup of the New Testament, this cup, is the New Testament in My blood. We have the assurance that as we take it in faith, we take Christ by faith. And we have the assurance that His love is freshly given to us. We have the assurance that He is our Savior. That He is at peace with us. We have the assurance that all that He's promised to provide is provided and will be provided to us. And if someone were to come in your ear at the table and say, by what warrant do you expect any of these promises to be fulfilled to you. Look at yourself. Look what you've done. Look what you continue to struggle with. You point at the bread and at the wine and you say these are emblems of Him who has an oath upon Him to perform all of His promises. And though I have proven time and again imperfect, never has He and never will He And so here is my assurance. It rests not in me. It rests not in my brothers and sisters. It rests not in the pastor. It rests in the Christ whose table this is, whose signs are provided me, whose signs are pledges to me. And so I take Him at His Word. And in receiving His Word, I receive Him and all that He's promised. May God so bless that we might enjoy Him who is faithful and who is incapable of lying and who has sworn with an oath to fulfill all of His promises to us by grace. Would you stand with me for prayer?